Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read and preach verses 7 and 8 this morning. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Romans after Pastor Deckard's series on heaven. So let me remind us of the flow of thought up to this particular point in Romans 8. The Apostle Paul has talked about the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We deserve condemnation because of our sins, but we receive justification because of Christ if we put our trust in Christ. So he says there's no condemnation for us if we believe in Jesus. He's talked about no condemnation. He's also talked about the fact that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin in order that you and I would have the power or the ability to fulfill the law as we walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. God the Father sent God the Son to live and to die and to rise again for us And the point of that, or at least one point of that, was so that we would be able to walk in obedience to his law by the enabling grace of his spirit. And then most recently, Paul highlighted the difference between believers and unbelievers. Believers are those who live according to the spirit and set their minds on the things of the spirit, though we do so rather imperfectly, we all know. And unbelievers are those who live according to the flesh and set their minds on the things of the flesh. And to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now in verses 7 and 8, what he does is he zooms in on those who set their minds on the flesh. He zooms in on unbelievers and he highlights three things about them. Their hostility to God their rebellion against God, and their spiritual inability. Those will be the three main points of the sermon. And thinking about all this, I think, can help us in a number of ways, and we'll explore that as we go through the sermon. But just to mention briefly here, I think it can help us as believers to appreciate our salvation, to appreciate our salvation, to appreciate what God has saved us from by his grace. Not by our works, but by his grace through faith. It can also help us to think clearly and compassionately about the unbelievers we know, to think clearly, to think biblically about their spiritual condition and what it really is, to have compassion on them and love for them. And thinking about all this can motivate us to pray for them and to proclaim the gospel to them, which is really their only hope of rescue from their spiritual condition, which Paul describes in these two verses. So we're gonna look at this together, but before we do so, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help as we come again to your word this morning. Your word is truth, and we ask that you would sanctify us by the truth We pray that you would transform us by the renewal of our minds according to your word. We want to think clearly and compassionately about the unbelievers we know. We desire to be further motivated and equipped to share the gospel with them. We desire to grow in godliness ourselves. And so we pray for your help. 
please purify us and cleanse us and renew us and empower us through the reading and the preaching of your word now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 8, reading verses 7 and 8. These are the words of the one true God. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Three points, again. You can see them in your sermon notes there. Hostility, rebellion, and inability. Those are the three things Paul emphasizes about unbelievers in these two verses. He emphasizes their hostility towards God, their rebellion against God, and their spiritual inability. And we'll think about each of those in turn. So first, hostility. Paul says in the first part of verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For the mind that is set on the flesh. The mind is not the whole person, of course. God has made us soul and body creatures. We have an inner man as well as an outer man. And it is, of course, part of our Christian duty to be good stewards of both by God's grace. But the mind is so important. The mind is critical. There's a lot in the Bible about our minds and how we think. And here, the mind represents the whole person. The mind sort of stands in for the whole person. The mind that is set on the flesh means the person whose mind is set on the flesh. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. To have your mind set on the flesh is to have your mind set on sin, to have your mind set on yourself, to have your mind set on this world. It's to seek first the kingdom of self instead of the kingdom of God. It's to dedicate yourself and devote yourself to worldly pursuits. It's to orient your whole life around you instead of God. It's to do what feels right, regardless of what is right. It's to follow your heart instead of your maker. It's to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That's what it means to have your mind set on the flesh. And Paul says that the person whose mind is set on the flesh is hostile to God, not open to God, not interested in God, not seeking God, but hostile to God. The person whose mind is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. That is, they're against God. They're opposed to God. They hate God deep down, and sometimes on the surface, too. They are sworn enemies of the true God. They are not pro-God. They're not even neutral towards God. They are anti-God. They are allergic to him. They are hostile 
to him. John Murray put it simply, the essence of sin is to be against God. It is the contradiction of God. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now you might be thinking to yourself at this point, well, my non-Christian neighbor or coworker doesn't seem that bad. Or perhaps you're here this morning as a non-Christian and you might be thinking something similar about yourself. And if that's the case, what I would encourage you to recognize, what I would encourage all of us to recognize, is that when Paul says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, he's not saying hostile to God in general, hostile to some kind of God, hostile to some kind of divine being, some kind of deity. No, when he says here in this verse, hostile to God, he means hostile to the God of the Bible. Hostile towards the one true and living God. Hostile towards the God who made us and sustains us every moment. Hostile towards the God who is our rightful king and our holy judge. Hostile towards the God to whom we owe complete obedience and total allegiance. Hostile toward the God whose law is our authority and whose glory is our chief end. By nature, we are, all of us, hostile to that God, to the God, to the only God there is. By nature, we don't want to obey him. We want to be free, to do whatever we please. By nature, we are, quote, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. From Hitler to the kind old lady down the street who is unconverted. From the vilest criminal to the most morally upstanding citizen. From the atheist college professor to the most devout adherent to Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. All mankind by nature is hostile to the true God their maker. Turn back to Romans 1 for just a minute, second half of Romans 1, and let me just read what it says there about the spiritual condition of mankind, the status of mankind's relationship with God. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, and I'll just read through the end of the chapter without comment. Romans chapter 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, 
God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Let me say two things here by way of application. First, note the insanity of sin. The insanity of sin. Why would anyone in their right mind be hostile to God? He's the one who made us. Think of the intricacy of our bodies and the way they work. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist puts it. Think of the ability to think that he's given to us. Think of the senses he's given to us to enjoy the good gifts that are all around us. Beautiful things we can see with our eyes. Delicious food we can taste with our tongues. All kinds of textures we can touch with our hands. The endless variety of sounds we hear with our ears or smells we can smell with our noses. Consider the world he has made with all its rocks and trees and skies and seas, with all its sunrises and sunsets and starry nights, with all its birds and butterflies and sea creatures and puppies. Consider God himself who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Children, some of you are memorizing the Shorter Catechism definition, what is God? God is a spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, power, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The God in whose presence there is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, the God whom to know is eternal life, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of creation, 
providence and redemption. The God of beauty and mercy and glory. How could anyone be hostile to God? Note and note well and note deeply, note personally, note permanently the insanity of sin. Second, note the power of God's grace. The power of God's grace. Because when God saves us, he turns our hostility into love. Really, he uproots our hostility and removes it, and he plants love for him in its place. He turns his enemies into his friends. He takes children of wrath and makes them children of God. He removes a heart of hostility and replaces it with a heart of humility. He changes us by the power of his grace. And he can change anybody by the power of his grace. As Christians, we are no longer hostile towards God. Yes, we still struggle. Yes, we still wrestle with the flesh. Yes, we still have to fight against the residue of hostility to God that remains in our hearts. But by the grace of God, we are fundamentally different now. We are fundamentally changed We now love God because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. So let me encourage you, if you are no longer hostile to God, if your heart has been changed by God, love God from the heart. Seek to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Pray that God would make you increase and abound in love for him and for others. Don't follow that remnant of hostility to God when it's awakened in your heart. As a believer, you are no longer of the flesh. You are no longer hostile to God. So love God from the heart by the power of his grace. Well, that's hostility. Let's think a bit more briefly about rebellion, our second main point now, rebellion. Look again at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Those whose mind is set on the flesh do not submit to God's law. They rebel against God. God's law. They disobey. They disregard God's law. God says no, and they say yes. Or God says yes, and they say no. Jesus said to the Father, not my will, but thine be done. They say to the Father, not thy will, but mine be done. This can be external those who are very obviously, evidently breaking God's law. But it can also be mainly internal, those who are outwardly obedient but inwardly defiant, like so many of the Pharisees were, even Paul himself, before he was converted. But regardless, those whose mind is set on the flesh do not submit 
to God's law. And their rebellion is rooted in their hostility. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. In other words, their hostility is shown by their rebellion. It's not that they don't submit to God's law because, hey, nobody's perfect. They're trying really hard and they just happen to fall short. No, it's that they don't submit to God's law because they are hostile to God himself. John Murray, again, said that the law of God reflects the divine character and will, and the attitude to the law is the index of the relation to God. The attitude to the law is the index of the relation to God. In other words, what you think about God's law is an indicator of what you think about God himself. What you think about God's law is an indicator of what your relationship to God is. If you're his sworn enemy, you're not going to submit to his laws. If you don't think he's good, you're not going to do what he says. If your heart is full of hostility towards him, then your heart's going to be full of rebellion against his law. Unbelievers, by nature, are not only hostile to God, they are also in rebellion against God's law. This has been the case ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. But there are some particular ways, I think we can see this very evidently in our present moment, We see it in many ways in what Vladimir Putin has been leading the Russian military to do against Ukraine. You shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. We see it in what some of these famous billionaires are doing with their money and with their ingenuity. We see it in many of our politicians, sadly, how they treat each other, especially with their words. We see it in the LGBTQ agenda and its rejection of God's good creation and God's good command. We see it in all the murders and other violent crimes we hear about on the news. We see it in the rampant and blatant sexual immorality that is all around us. We see it in the way people treat each other and react to each other on Facebook and Twitter, other forms of social media. We see it in the way children disobey their parents and the way parents demean their children. I'm sure we could all add to that short list. All around us, we see those whose mind is set on the flesh rebelling against God's good law. It's not the way it should be, but it's the way it is, and it's because of sin. And the solution is Jesus Christ, his person and work, his glorious gospel of grace. The only solution is Christ, the Son of God who became man and who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death and rose victorious from the grave. 
so that all who repent of their sin and put their trust in him could be saved. It is in Christ alone that our hope is found. Because it is Christ alone who can take rebellious hearts and melt them into glad and humble obedience. It is Christ alone who can turn our hostility to love and our rebellion to submission. It is Christ alone who can solve our greatest problem, our sin against God. And as Christians, we have found all of these things in Christ by faith, haven't we? Sure, we still have that sinful instinct in us to rebel against God's good law, but in Christ, by faith, we have the spiritual ability to joyfully obey God's law. We are no longer of the flesh, we are of the spirit. And we now delight in God. We delight to do his will. The oldest of Satan's lies is that we'll be happier if we go our own way. We'll be happier if we get out from under the authority of God's oppressive law. We'll be happier if we are free from its constraints and free to follow our own desires wherever they may lead. But we know where our sinful desires lead, don't we? They lead to misery. It is being under the authority of God's good law in the context of God's gospel that leads to true happiness. Let me ask you this morning, how does that lie manifest itself in your own life, in your own struggles? Where are you most tempted to believe that happiness is found not in holiness, but in having your own way? What does Satan most often dangle in front of your eyes to lure you into rebellion against God's law. Don't forget that all he shows you is the shiny bait. He doesn't show you the sharp hook. Don't forget this verse that says that it's the mind that is set on the flesh that does not submit to God's law. Don't forget that you are of the Spirit now as a Christian. You have a new heart You have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. And don't forget that happiness is found in glad submission to God's law, not in hostile rebellion against it. So Paul tells us in verse 7 that the, tells us about the unbeliever's hostility to God and the unbeliever's rebellion against God. Then at the end of verse 7, And into verse 8, he tells us about the unbeliever's spiritual inability. Our third main point, inability. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it's not just that the natural man does not submit to God's law. His problem goes even deeper. 
It's that he also cannot submit to God's law. He does not do it, and he cannot do it. He is unwilling to obey God, and he is unable to obey God. And the reason is because he's enslaved to sin. He's in bondage to sin. He is what Paul says we all once were in Titus 3, verse 3, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And as a slave to sin, a willing slave to sin, the unbeliever is unwilling and unable to obey God. And his inability to obey God doesn't cancel out his responsibility to obey God. As John Piper put it, our inability does not remove our guilt. It deepens it. The unbeliever is responsible to submit to God's law, but the unbeliever is so enslaved to sin that he is unable to submit to God's law. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. John Murray once more summarizes, here we have nothing less than the doctrine of the total inability of the natural man. That is to say, total inability to be well-pleasing to God or to do what is well-pleasing in his sight. In the whole passage, we have the biblical basis for the doctrine of total depravity and total inability. And don't miss how personal this is. Look again at verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this isn't about just an unwillingness and an inability to keep a list of rules. This is personal. It's about an unwillingness and an inability to please God. If you're hostile to God and you're rebelling against God, then you are not able to please God. And in order to please God, your hostility and your rebellion must first be removed. That is what happens when someone believes the gospel. When someone puts their trust in Jesus Christ. That's what happened to all of us who are believers. God turned our hostility into love and our rebellion into submission. And he turned our inability into ability. He enables us by his grace and empowers us by his spirit to walk in obedience to him. Like Paul said back in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin 
have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Or earlier in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but those who are in the Spirit can. Those who are in the Spirit can please God, not perfectly, but sincerely. Not for our justification, but because of our justification and as part of our sanctification. Not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of Christ. Since we are in the Spirit, we should seek in all we do to please God. A frequently asked question in our mind should be, will this please God? A frequently asked question in our conversations with each other should be, does this or that please God? And if it doesn't, we should avoid it. And if it does, we should pursue it in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. Let us seek to please God in all we do. So Paul has told us three things about unbelievers. He's told us about their hostility towards God, their rebellion against God, and their spiritual inability. We've thought about that together. We've considered how God has changed us. He's changed our hostility to love. He's changed our rebellion to submission. He's changed our inability to ability, the ability to please God by the enabling grace of the Spirit. Two thoughts about how we should respond to all this as we draw to a close this morning. First, how should we respond to all this with respect to the unbelievers around us? If they are hostile to the true God, if they are rebelling against his law, if they are unable to please God, what should we do? Three things. We should have compassion on them. We should pray for them. And we should proclaim the gospel to them. We should have compassion on them. We shouldn't demonize them. We shouldn't slander them. We shouldn't belittle them. We should have compassion on them like God does, like Christ does. We should pray for them because only God can change their hearts, right? Only God could change our hearts, and he did. And if he could do it for us, then he could do it for them. He could do it for anyone. We should pray that God would save them as he has saved us. And we should proclaim the gospel to them. 
we should proclaim the gospel to them because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1. We should proclaim the gospel to them because the gospel is the good news of regeneration and redemption and reconciliation. We should proclaim the gospel to them because the gospel is the only hope of eternal life and eternal joy in the presence of God. In light of what verses 7 and 8 say clearly about unbelievers, we should have compassion on them, we should pray for them, and we should proclaim the gospel to them. Second, and finally, how should we respond to all this with respect to ourselves? Say with John Bradford, there but for the grace of God, go I. Or better yet, say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 15, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray together. God, we thank you together for your amazing grace. By your grace alone, we are who we are as Christians, those who are of the spirit and no longer of the flesh. Though we still wrestle with the flesh, it is no longer what defines us. It is no longer the dominating force within us. You have changed us, changed our hostility to love and our rebellion to submission and our inability to ability by the Spirit to walk in obedience to you. And we thank you for your amazing grace. We pray for the unbelievers around us that you would pour out your grace on them. Help us to have compassion on them like Christ. To pray for them frequently and fervently and to proclaim the gospel to them with clarity and boldness and love. And we pray that you would bring many to the saving knowledge of you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.